Now, as we take up a five-part series in Jonah, one of the challenges that we face is this is a remarkably familiar section of Scripture, which is good. But sometimes we think, I know this, or I've heard this, or even tragically, we get to places where we think, that's a story for children. But we know that that's not the case. This is the Word of God. And practically speaking, in the chapter that I've read, there are no children that are characters in that particular section. And I think there's much for us to understand. Uh, This is in a season in the history of Israel where things are going all right. Things are relatively peaceful in their community around them, though they've had some trouble in the past. Uh, Just minimal background details so that we can kind of understand what is going on here. At this time, the king is Jeroboam II, of whom Jonah was one of the men who prophesied for that kingdom. Uh, It was a time where they were not having as much trouble with Assyria and attacks as they'd had in the past. Actually, King Jeroboam has been able to recover a lot of the property and a lot of the land that had been taken by the previous king of Assyria. So it's a time of prosperity and a time of success. But there is still a great degree of enmity and animosity between the Assyrians and the Jews and Israel. And it is in, and Nineveh is one of the key major cities in Assyria. The period of time that this is, this is in the early 700s BC. Now, BC means early 700s, means between 750 and 800, because early is backwards when you go BC. All right. So putting all these pieces, this is a long, long time ago. God had granted a degree of peace, a degree of prosperity. So Compared to at times, prophets were being called to go to Israel at times of utter rebellion and point out their sin and call them out of their sin, remind them of their covenant obligations, remind them of God's standards, remind them of God's mercy and acts in the past. Many times that took place. As God speaks to Jonah here, things are going relatively well in Israel. And so God does not tell him, go to the king of Israel. God does not tell him, go to the king of Judah. Had he done that, it's likely that Jonah would have said, yes, fine. But God actually is going to take Jonah and call him and tell him to go to Nineveh. Which historically at that time, that means go to this great city of the Assyrians. Go basically into the thriving heart of your enemy's territory. Which we know that uh, as, as we begin to unfold this, Jonah has no desire, no intention to go there. And, and when we begin to look at it, the first thought there is simply the word and the will of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. I mean, when something begins like that, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, whatever follows, that is what? God's word. It's true. It's authoritative. It's reliable. It's required. Those are sureties when it follows. This, the word uh, came from the Lord. And he says this. Comes to Jonah. It says, arise Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now this is an interesting note. When, when we think of this in this, this is, I've stated in there, a demand, not a discussion. He doesn't come to him and say, what are your thoughts and feelings on Nineveh? Are you, uh, you, you like Nineveh? How do you feel about Assyrians in general? There's no assessment of the practical, emotional feelings, disposition, or circumstances of Jonah. God comes in and says, this is what I'm telling you to do. Arise and go. Now, when, when it's phrased like this, and I think it carries that this when you read it. The phrasing in the Hebrew is not uh, arise and go. Isn't, hey, when you get time or when you get around to it. 
the phrasing for arise and go carries a sense of immediacy and expediency. Do it. Do it now. Arise and go. Now, hearing that, again, noting, noting this, it is a declaration, not a dialogue. There, there's not a lot of feedback. And also, in, in this context, there's not a lot of uh, ways for uh, Jonah to try to say, what are you really saying? You know, I, I don't know if I really understand what you want from me. This isn't unclear, is it? God has been remarkably powerfully, beautifully precise. And I'm so thankful that that's not, this isn't a rare occasion. Who he is, who his son is, the means of salvation, the surety of it, the hope of eternity, all of those things, God has been remarkably clear about it. These are not things up for discussion. They're not things up for debate. These are truths that have been declared by God himself in his word. And so the right response from Jonah would be what? Yes, sir. And you get up and you go. Again, I want to state there, thirdly, I'm trying to really do this point. It's a dictum that requires doing. It is an authoritative pronouncement. He's supposed to do this. Not make arrangements for someone else to do it. He's, he's not asked if his heart is in it. He's not asked at this point, does he, does he feel a sense of calling? Is this, does this push him out of his comfort zone? He, none of those things are there. It is very clear and very simple. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What he, what he, when he's to go right now, where he's to go, Nineveh, what he's to do, call out against it, it's all very clear. And so the only right answer to that is to get up and go. Now, interestingly also woven in there is the city this, um, a call against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, the scripture uses lots of poetic terms, particularly in the Hebrew, uh, of, of God's responses to sin. The same kind of language is used with regard to, you might be familiar with, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the same thing, a cry has gone out against them, has come up to me, that their evil has filled up. And you remember, as their evil has come up, the scriptures even are giving us a, a sense of this before sending judgment against them. God says, I'm going to go down and have a look and see what the circumstances are like in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then I will judge it. But first, I'm going to go ahead and go and tell Abraham what I'm going to do. Just, just to carry for humanity's sense. Now, as scriptures go on, we learn more and more about God and the scope of his knowledge and the scope of his perfect wisdom is filled up. The fact that he knows all things. No secrets are hidden from him. He shatters the mighty without investigation. But this, the scriptures are just kind of making it super clear to us that when God's judgment is poured out, it is poured out justly. It is poured out rightly. With regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, as that cry went up against him, you remember, he went to Abraham first and said, Abraham, I'm going to go and destroy them. Now what's funny is, is he, as he's there with these angels, and these angels are going to make their way to Sodom and Gomorrah and see how evil it is, we see that God already knows every detail about it. Because what does he say? We have the attempt of Abraham to intercede on behalf. Of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what he says? God, if there are, uh, suppose there are 50 people, that righteous people there, would you not uh, preserve the city for the sake of the 50? And what does God say? Sure, if there's 50, I'll do that. Oh, what if, uh, suppose five of the 50 are missing, and there's 45. Then, would you, would you not spare the city? It's only five difference. Would you not spare it? God says, yes, if there's 45 righteous, I'll spare the city. And if you recall, suppose there's 40. 
I'll spare it for 40. Suppose there's 30. I'll spare it for 30. Suppose there's 20. I'll spare it for 20. Um, suppose there's 10. I mean, it, he, he really did that. And, and we look at that and think, wow, he's really pushing it, huh? because his first foray into that discussion with suppose there's 50 is like, um, you know, who am I to ask this? And I'm not really challenging you and and have mercy on me and consider this if there's 50. Now he's worked it all the way down to 10. And God says, even if there's 10. What I want you to note is this. Uh, As he, in in a very real sense, is pleading for the mercy and patience of God potentially towards Sodom and Gomorrah, He may not even realize it, but he himself is presently the recipient of God's tremendous mercy and patience as he continues to suppose, suppose, suppose. But as he stops at 10, there are not even 10 there. And God brings that judgment and brings it down heavy against them. Uh, That's That's in uh, Genesis chapter 18. What's interesting also is when God called Abraham and told him, I'm going to give to you all this land, but before this land is yours, all of your descendants are going to, are going to be in slavery, imprisoned for 400 years, and then they're going to come back and inherit the land. It says in uh, chapter 15, in verse 16, the reason why there is going to be this extended delay that involves 500 years of slavery is because God says, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so it's just, just the amazing precision of God. He has his judgment. Are they sinful? Yes. Are they wicked? Sure. Do, could they, would God be just to immediately pour out judgment upon them? He could. But he's slow to anger and patient and merciful. And he's going to wait until it fills up. Going to leave them to themselves and let it get worse and worse. And God knows exactly when their sin is going to cross that line where he says, too much. I'm coming down. I'm ending this. You lose this land. You're being dispossessed. You're, being dis- you're, going, to, you're going to be eradicated, many of you, and or the few who remain will be subjugated. And so we see this... Um, consistent presentation of God as one who sees sin and who deals with sin. But the challenge is God who deals with sin often deals with it with such patience and mercy. And it appears that this is the big concern of Jonah. He's afraid that he's going to go there and God is going to show patience and mercy. There have been times that God has sent prophets to some of the kings of Israel. And as those prophets have gone to those kings, those kings have torn their clothes and repented and humbled themselves before God. And then God has had mercy on them and not brought the judgment that he had declared against them. So it seems that In light of those kinds of things, Jonah does not want there to be even the opportunity. Maybe he's weighing it like this. God is going to judge them in 40 days. He's just told me that. If I can just run away and nobody warns them within this time period, they're done. Amen. Well, he might be because he wants them done and dusted and so he does not want to go and give that message and we see the next thing here what i call the fleeing and foolishness of jonah look what it says in verse three but jonah god told him where to go what to do but jonah rose to flee to tarshish from the presence of the lord now that's a that's an interesting concept there We've got to be careful about that, and probably there's a process going on of growth and understanding of who God is. Now, God would manifest his presence powerfully in certain places. The manifest presence of God would often accompany the ark, and that's why the ark would be taken with them into battles. The ark would be put into the temple in the Holy of Holies, and that would be a place that represented a greater presence presence of God so that the scriptures could say even of the temple or the tabernacle David went into the presence of the Lord 
And then he went out from the presence of the Lord. When Sennacherib was challenging the children of Israel, Hezekiah could go in and he could lay the letters of threat, laid them before the presence of the Lord, and then go out of the presence of the Lord. Somewhat. Even when you went out of the manifest special expression of the presence of God that was in the temple, did you actually go away from the presence of the Lord? Is there anywhere you can really go to escape from him? We're reminded in, in a, a glorious psalm, Psalm chapter 139, the scriptures say this in verse 7 and following, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Would have been a good psalm for Jonah be, to be thinking about at this time. <laughs> Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And this is how he then describes it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. So I go as far up as is conceivable, you're still there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is considered the lowest place possible, the underworld, the place of departed spirits, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So highest possible, lowest possible, he's there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. Again, the wings of the morning speaks of a spontaneous, unplanned, urgent, quick departure. See, maybe if I'm planning it, making reservations, God will know where I'm going. But if I just suddenly get up one morning and I just, I just go, I just go. Maybe I don't even know what destination, I'm just, I'm just going. And I end up some remote place at the end of the sea. I mean, I didn't even know I was going to be there tonight. Surely God won't know where I'm at, right? Well, this, what does the scripture say? You, you've done all of that. Verse 10 says, even there your hand shall lead me. You thought you were going somewhere undetermined, undisclosed, and, and every step of your journey, God was leading you. You thought you were out ahead of Him? You weren't. You can't get ahead of Him. And your right hand shall hold me securely. Well, if I say the darkness shall surely cover me, and the light be night about me, here's what I'll do. I'll hide in the darkness. Because no man can see in the darkness, right? Here's the problem. You shouldn't think of God like a man. <laughs> Even the darkness shall be as light to you. Boy, this would have been a helpful psalm for Jonah to understand. Because could he really flee from the presence of God? If I can just get to Tarshish, well, there God can't get me. That's a city with almost no Jews, maybe no synagogue there. I mean, come on. That's a place where, yeah, he won't be able to find me out. He doesn't have many spies there who can tell him where I'm. Does that how it works? No. And it, So I find this astounding. This is a man who is a prophet of God, used of God in his age and his community, but still he had glaring deficiencies in his understanding of who God is and his understanding of how God works. Now, to not slight him too much, we have the added benefit of the totality of the Scripture, far more than he had. He probably didn't have personal, regular access to the Psalms. They were there in the temple. They were there in the synagogues. But you didn't have publishing and books and Bibles in the way we do now. But since we do have them, oh, let us learn. Let us not make the same foolish mistakes that he made. When God has revealed glorious and powerful truths about himself, why would we remain foolish and flee? When God has made things known that we might know him and that we might obey. And his fleeing is not, not random accidental. It says he rose, he found a ship, he paid his fare, he went down to the ship. So I mean this was not something that was a whim. He was 
really planning and thinking that he could flee and how foolish it, it even says twice in this in this passage that he thought that the it, in verse 3 it says twice that he was going to go away from the presence of the Lord but that could not be done and that brings us so he finds himself on the ship that he's sailing to Tarshish they weigh anchor they head out to sea and there we see the wind and the waves from God verse 3 had begun but Jonah verse 4 begins but the Lord okay if those two are in contrast comparison or competition with one another take a little guess who's gonna come out ahead in that one but God but Jonah Jonah's trying to make maneuvers to escape God and accomplish his will but if God is determined to carry out something who can stop it who can avoid it who can delay it who can thwart it and what does the scripture remind us about God what he desires it was in the in the scripture reading all that he, our God is in heaven all that he desires he does that's it Jonah thought nah not today today I do what I want now I'm just gonna throw this out there I I'm convinced Jonah had no intention of being in the belly of a great fish that was not his plan for the day right and so he gets out there and and we begin to see this the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea now what's interesting is this he, he goes down goes down to Joppa he gets out on the sea so he's he's away from Jerusalem he's away from the seeming presence of the Lord he's already out on the sea but you know what he's gonna find out God is not only the God of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the coastlands but he's the God of everywhere all places at all times and not only does he have authority over men to tell them do this and do that to judge them for what they do but God has authority over the wind and over the waves the Lord hurled a great wind that's not something anyone else that you ever meet has done or can do and this is uh, when it says a great wind it's not it's not a small statement of it this is a storm uh, a storm with great specificity the storm it says this hurled a great wind on the sea there was a it's described as a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was threatened to break up now ships are generally designed for what going from place to place on the sea wasn't a trick question and so they can usually hold up under most circumstances now even if you're building a ship do you build it thinking this good thing there will never be bad weather at sea you think that happens unlikely so you build with some possibility that it can survive the ordinary struggles and challenges that would arise what happened here was not among the ordinary it was extraordinary remember the men on the ship it says verse 5 then the mariners were afraid all right what are these people what are, what is their career these are mariners these are seagoing men again the problem is in in modern America mariners isn't that a baseball team no yes it is a baseball team but that's not the origins of the word and stop thinking about those guys it, it is about even we might think mariner Marines it's the Marines it's not that either these are men of the sea they lived at sea and this was their life this was their career and it says of them they were what afraid it's unlikely that a mariner has not faced a storm has not faced some difficulty at sea so if they're afraid it means things are quite bad 
to get a sense of how bad the things were, it says, each cried out to his God. Now, by, by phrasing it, each cried out to his God, it really is indicating this. There was not a man among them that thought, it's not that bad. There was not a man, man among them that thought, we'll get through this. Every single one of them thought, I don't think we're going to get through this. We need divine intervention. Every single one of them was convinced. Each one cried out to his God. Of course, what's the problem? In the opening psalm, we saw that these gods are nothing. Not only did Psalm 115, but Psalm 135 basically says the same kind of thing, but expands on the idea. It says this. Uh, verse 15 of 135, the idols of nations are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. So what hope is there for them? It, back in chapter 115 of Psalms, it had said, they're the works of human hands. Verse 5, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. We leave that one off uh, and it's pretty funny. They have hands but do not feel, feet that do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. It's nothing. Their, their gods are nothing but really, really hard stuffed animals. They've got no, no power to them at all. And these men are crying out to them because that's, all, that's what they've been deceived. Will they get any help? You can't get any help. I mean, you, you could, it's like crying out to a pencil to help you keep the rain off of you when it's storming. It can't do anything. It's just a pencil and it's not designed for that. You can't even cover your head with it. These men cried out, but they did not at this point know any better. In the cities, in the countries in which they've been raised, this is all they've ever known. And the scripture goes on to tell they, they were so scared that they not only cried out to their gods, they hurled um, the cargo from the ship I mean, that is an extreme measure. And then they go down into the ship and they find Jonah's in there sleeping. Jonah's gone down into the ship and he's fast asleep, it tells us at the end of verse 5. Now, um, the specificity of this storm, I want you to see this. After Jonah will tell them who he is, it says, nevertheless, and to throw me in, it says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to land. Well, he's if he's worships this God, we don't want to get in bad situation with his God, so what we'll do is we'll just go back to land. And they rode hard, and this is what the scripture says about that, but they could not. They could not get back to dry land. Why? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Not randomly, but directly against them. Wherever they would try to go and think, if we go here, that'll help us. If we go, let's just go back. The storm itself was under God's absolute control to blow the wind this way, to blow the wind that way, to work it exactly as he pleased. What an astounding thing. And we see then the comparison of the God and their gods. They, they had cried out to their gods that we see their prayers and their panics. Verse 5 says, the mariners were afraid and they cried out to their gods. When they came down to, and found him sleeping, verse 6 says this, and we see the prayer and the panic in their minds. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. So here's the simple reality. The captain is convinced. What is the inevitable outcome? Perishing. <laughs> and they've all already cried out to their gods. And how effective was it? Didn't work. And so here's another guy. We'll call out to your God. Maybe he can do something about it. Which makes you doubt his own convictions about his God, to some extent. Uh, but that's the reality. If it, perhaps, I mean, maybe your God's stronger today. Maybe mine's on vacation. 
Maybe mine's busy listening to music right now or, or having a feast, and maybe yours will do something. I have no idea how it works, but give it a shot. Let's see what happens. That's the panic. Desperate, willing to try anything. You know, and, and I'm oft remembered in these kind of circumstances of, of a good friend that I had many years back when I was in college who I was working with in a job. Um, his name was Mike Arguello. And uh, by the time they found uh, the cancer that he had, it was inoperable. And uh, he was given three months from the time of diagnosis to the time of death. And I remember going to meet with him, to pray with him, to share the gospel with him again for the hundredth time and in his house, you know, and sharing with him and, and, and to asking him, what do, you, what do you think about Christ? What do you think about the things I'm sharing? Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. Uh, you know, I, I definitely want that. I said, and I was like, wow, this is, this is fantastic. What a wonderful response. And, the, and, and then as I began to say the next word, he said, because I'm ready. I'm trying anything. And he pulled out of his pocket. See this? This is a, this is a feather that a Native American friend gave me and told me to keep it close to me and it might provide hailing. Right there in the window. See that crystal I've got hanging that the light's coming through? I've been told by another friend that I should let the light come through that crystal on me for a certain number of minutes each day, and that, that might help me. So if you're telling me Jesus, I said, I'm not promising you that Jesus is going to heal you. But what I'm telling you, I'm telling you he can. But I'm also telling you this, there is no salvation apart from him. And even if you don't die in the next few weeks, someday we all die. And then we stand before him in judgment. And there is no hope in feathers. There is no hope in crystals. There is no hope in man. There is no hope in false gods. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than Jesus Christ. Said, so un until and unless you're ready to pull down that crystal, throw away that feather, and by faith lay hold of Christ, brother, there is no hope in this world or the following for you. And he said, well, I just want to make sure to hedge my bets. It broke my heart. And he uh, ultimately passed a few weeks later um, without really having faith in Christ, trying to think if I can just believe in enough things, maybe one of them will work. That's how the world thinks. These mariners were, were learning in a tragic experiential basis Everything that they had all hoped in can't do a thing for them. In their greatest hour of need, they were left, left desperate and hopeless. And God orchestrated this scenario into which they then cast lots to determine who it was. Now again, this is not the way we would necessarily do things. They're about to die. They're trying to figure out who's the guilty one. Let's cast lots to figure out who it was. Now, casting lots is not, uh, ultimately, that's like the throwing of dice, but that's not a random thing because our scriptures tell us this very clearly in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every answer is from the Lord. Even the things that people think are random and chance, God is controlling those things too. From the casting of the lot to the hurling of wind, to the great and the, and, the, and the swashing of waves, to the great and mighty and the seemingly simple and mundane, every one of those things is under the purvey of God's sovereign providential power. Isn't that amazing? They cast the lot and it comes out on Jonah. So they ask him, what'd you do? It came on you. What did you do? And he basically, it, it's quite clear at this point that Jonah understood when that lot came on him, it was tantamount to God pointing the finger at him. <laughs> this is the guy. This is the reason this is happening here. And he had no escape, no way around it. God had showed himself clear 
and the lot had been cast. And they asked him, tell us who this evil has come on. Why is this happening? Where are you from? What do you do? We've got to understand what's happening. They were so, we see the fear and the faith there, exceedingly fearful, caught up. Their their fear goes from being afraid in verse 5 to down in verse 9 it says, And I said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now what's interesting about that is Jonah is being asked who he is, and why is this happening, where he comes from. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord for a Hebrew was an expression of reverence, obedience, faithfulness, and worship. Just want to ask you, if you were talking about Jonah at this particular time in his life, would you say Jonah was acting like someone who fears the Lord? No, if he feared the Lord as he's, as he's testifying of himself, what would he be doing? He would be journeying across land to Nineveh, not getting in a boat to go to Tarshish. So, yeah, nice try, Jonah. Yeah, it's good that you have such a spiritual self-image. But many men fool themselves as to how good they are and how righteous they are and how deserving they are. No. He says that he fears the Lord and... Uh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, the word he used there, you're going to see in your Bible, it is, the Lord is in all caps. That is the word Yahweh, or that we often say Jehovah. That was a unique term for the God of the Israelites, the true God maker of heaven and earth and all that exists. That word was not used of any other gods. For other gods, you could have words like Lord and words like God, and, and some of those terms could be interchangeable from language to language. But that particular one, Yahweh, was exclusive and not used by any other nation, any other people, anyone else. It was exclusive to God. That name became known across all of those lands, across all of those regions and beyond when God delivered the children of Israel out. When he brought them victory over Egypt. When he brought them victory over Jericho. When he brought them all the tremendous victories against the various kings in the land. So that that went out. So as soon as he mentions this name. For these men. Though he is not their God. The legend of this God's power and this God's deeds would have been like. Oh no. It's him. The one who defeated Pharaoh, the one who defeated King uh, Og and Bashan, the one who defeat, brought down the walls of Jericho, the one who sent fire and sulfur from heaven. Oh no! What do we do? They were struck with fear. And also, the difference is among them, they would all come from areas where they would have a God who was a Poseidon, who's a God of the sea, and another who's a God of maybe hills, and a God of pastures and flatlands and all these things. The description here is, this is the God of all. This is the God who made it all. The God who is the God of all. And what does it say when they heard this? Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Now, how do you get more afraid than when you thought, we're about to die. <laughs> That's how afraid they already were, perishing. Now they get exceedingly afraid, the scriptures tell us. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them that. Then they said to him, what shall we do? He said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will go quiet because I know it's because of me that this tempest has come. But they did not want to get in bad position with God, so they thought, we'll just head back to shore and drop him off. But God stopped them from going back to shore. So that, so that now, this is what they do. For the first time, probably in their lives, in verse 14, they now pray to a God who hears, to a God who is. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, 
O Lord. Again, that is O Yahweh. They took the name of God on their lips in an expression of absolute dependence, recognizing he has the power over their very lives. Here's how they respond. Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. What did, this is the scary part. At this moment, it sounds to me like these men have better theology than Jonah. Their theology is this. Yahweh does as he pleases. Jonah's theology was, this is what he wants me to do, but he's not getting what pleases him this time. I'm leaving. And they, so they recognize that everything that is befalling them is by the power of a sovereign God accomplishing his will. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Again, by the phrasing of it, here you have from the wind, the sea is being tossed. You throw the guy in. Generally, if you throw something in water, what happens? It creates a ripple, and it goes on. This sea already had plenty of rippling, right? They threw a man in, and, man in, and what happened? <sighs> Suddenly, it's placid. Is that not awkward? These men just, just experienced going from a tempest that made it seem like they were going to die to suddenly calm. As soon as this guy went into the water, the sea ceased its raging. And then what does it say in verse 16? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, now this, is, this is kind of fun because in verse 5, they were afraid. Verse 9, they were exceedingly afraid. Now, here in verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. It's, it's as if it's run out of words. These men have suddenly had revealed to them all that they formerly thought and believed was deception. And that there is a God in heaven who is maker and master of all, and he has shown him them undeniably he is God. And they are stunned. Feared exceedingly. And then we see uh, in the various callings that take place in this passage, I really just want us to go on to this one. Uh, for lack of time, go on with me down to verse 16 if you would. Verse 16 says this, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, listen, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now just bound up in the terminology of that language. They, don't, they have nothing of the training, so I can guarantee you their sacrifice was not the appropriate sacrifices, and nor was it in the appropriate place, because they're on the ship. And they made vows to the Lord. In the concept of vows, those are pledges of personal commitment and loyalty. It, it would not be unlikely, and I'm just declaring here, yes, I'm speculating to an extent, but this is not brazen speculation. This is, I think, reasonable speculation in light of the fact that the scriptures say they were exceedingly fearful and cried out to the Lord. It says... They sacrificed to him and made vows to the Lord. It would be appropriate and consistent that among those vows, it would be from now on to you only do we sacrifice. From now on to you only do we pray. From now on, on to you only do we serve. Because you are a God who sees. You are a God who, ears, who hears. You are a God who acts. You're actually God. And all the others are nothing. And we will not go back to them. We vow ourselves to you. What, 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 what's, what's, 
interesting, just by way of, of, of quick consideration, is here woven into this, we think horrible Jonah disobedient God has to send this storm and the storm is there in order to punish Jonah to send him in the water because God is dealing with Jonah yeah you and I may be limited to one purpose and one event at a time but God is working things in ways that we don't even conceive here we get to see God is not only working in Jonah's life to convict him and to punish him and and to bring him to where he's supposed to be in obedience but he also saw fit to manifest himself and seems to work out a revelation and a salvation in him to these mariners. You had a revival break out on this ship in the revelation of the power of the true God. So, so, so all this happened because... Well, so it was a good thing then that Jonah tried to run away, right? Because in Jonah's trying to run, God had the opportunity. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't need our opportunities, you know. God may be pleased to use our missteps and mistakes because nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And God is pleased to manifest his power even in our failures, but that's not an excuse for failure. That's not an excuse for disobedience. And the last thing I just want to draw our attention to really in closing is there are just some remarkable parallels between this and Christ. It's hard to not see this at this season. This passage begins, the word of the Lord came. And that immediately sends my mind to John chapter 1 where the word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of the Lord came here and it seems uh, worked a mighty salvation. The word of the Lord will, would come, the Son of God, and he would accomplish a mighty and eternal salvation. What's interesting is, uh, in, in terms of these parallels, we have in this passage, what does Jonah do? He goes down into the boat and falls asleep and he's woken up with people saying, we are perishing. What does the scripture tell us happened one time with Jesus? He's with his disciples on a boat and he's asleep. And they wake him up. Master, master, don't you care? We are perishing. And what did he do? Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Said, Peace, be still. And the scripture says, and there was a great calm. But wait a second. In Jonah's event, it was God who brought the storm and God who calmed the storm. But in the Gospels, in Matthew, it was Jesus who calmed the storm. How is that? Because the Word of God came and the Word of God was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was God among us. Emmanuel, God with us. God become man, the Son of God. And not only is that an amazing parallel, but the, the last verse of this says this. The Lord appointed a great fish. So God controls the wind, the storm, the sea, the lot, and the fish. That's a pretty powerful God. And the fish did what? Swallowed Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The scripture tells us this, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But there is a, there, that's where the parallel is, where a sign stands, but there's a big difference. One was cast because of his own disobedience. Jesus went to the grave in perfect obedience. Isn't that right? And so, so yes, it's a similar sign, and it would be that thing that, that we notice. But, but when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it was something special, and something to be noted, and something to be obeyed. But when the word of the Lord came to earth, there's nothing like it. There's none like it, and he is to be seen. 
He is to be known. He is to be followed. He is to be obeyed. Jesus Christ, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than all. No salvation in any other. So with the word and the will of God, we listen and do what he says. Fleeing him is nothing but foolishness because God is everywhere and God is sovereign over all things. The wind and the waves are his and he controls them with specificity. The lot is his, the uh, fish is his. The God and the gods, there's only one true God and God was pleased in this occasion to demonstrate it so that men took note there is a God of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ also came and he made him known. And there is none like him. Even as this man, one man was to die so that these others would be saved. Not all the people were saved, but those ones on that ship. He died that specific would be saved. And in a similar way, Christ died that all of the, those appointed unto him would have life. And have life abundantly. And have life eternally. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. There is nothing that compares with it. We just bring, give you praise and glory. And thank you for the privilege of opening up and considering it. And just seeing your hand in history. We pray that as we uh, again freshly consider that source. We recognize your power and your sovereignty. Your authority remain undiminished. That you are and always Retain and remain absolute in your power and sovereignty. Absolute in your authority and person. And God, may we learn and listen, love and seek and follow you. As you unfold your purposes in our lives and in your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.